Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we come to you and have an in-depth conversation with a different creative individual, creative Mississippian, that is. We talk to writers, authors, photographers, visual artists, musicians, and all people across the creative spectrum. Today we're going to be talking about writing, the writing life, with our guest, Chris Offit. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Larry. It's, a, it's nice to be here and talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And uh, you were here a few years ago. Uh, we talked about your book, Country Dark. Right. And today you've got a brand new book out called Shifty's Boys. It's, uh, it's the second in a series of books. Hmm. You had a book came out last year. And this has the same character coming back from your book last year, The Killing Hills. Tell us a little bit about the, the main character, Mick Harden. Um, McCartney is a, a guy who grew up with his grandfather deep in the woods in the Appalachian foothills in eastern Kentucky, where I grew up. The book is set more or less where I grew up with a, a few names changed to protect the guilty, I guess. And um, right. So he grew up there with his grandfather uh, and learned sort of older ways of, of living. And then at 18, joined the Army to get out and um, did okay in the Army. It was a combat uh, paratrooper and then shifted to CID, which is a criminal investigation division within the Army, and are tasked with investigating felonies committed either on base or by uh, a serving uh, soldier. So that's Mick. At the beginning of the first book, he's back home on leave, and he's got some marital problems he needs to deal with, and his sister has become the first female sheriff in county history. So of course there's a lot of uh, a lot of the powers that be all men who aren't crazy about this idea. The other thing is that in, in Eastern Kentucky has 120 counties. I think it might be the most, pretty darn close of any other state. And the elected law enforcement, a sheriff, is the top of the heap. They can't be fired. They don't answer to anybody. So it's a it's a role with tremendous power, and they do not like the fact that there's a woman in the role. She is then faced with her, her first homicide uh, on the job and asks Mick if he'll, if he'll help her because he's he happens to be back home, if he'll help her because of his experience. So that's Mick Harden. That's his sister. There's a deputy sheriff named Johnny Boy Tolliver, who's one of my favorite characters. I love him. And, you know, they solve the crime in the first one, and then... In this new one, he's back, back home, living with his sister, recovering from a, a war wound uh, that he he incurred, and again gets sort of obliquely drawn into a homicide investigation. There's a dead guy who, who nobody cares about, and his mother asks Mick to to help, so he does. That's cool. Yes, that's that's Shifty of Shifty's Boys. Yeah, Shifty's Boys. Um, so you've done a lot of different types of writing and a lot of different types of books over yeah. the throughout your career, memoir, short story, more literary fiction. How did you come up, up on on this project? What what was the genesis of it? Well, I've always loved crime fiction and uh, and read, you know, thousands of, of, of these novels and um, had always 
wanted to try to write one. And in fact, I, I wrote two others before over the years, neither of which were successful. I just was finding my way and made mistakes and learned a lot. And then this book I started right before the, uh, the lockdown, the true quarantine, the COVID lockdown. And so I was in the middle of it, in the middle of quarantine when I was working on it. And I just thought this is a perfect time to continue and do this. The big thing I learned from the first two failed novels of, in this genre was I needed to set it in the hills of Kentucky. And as far as I know, there aren't any other crime novels actually set uh, in the contemporary hills of Kentucky. So I finished it. We were still under lockdown and quarantine. And I really missed these characters. I mean, for me, it was I could go back home. It's set where I grew up. I know all the people. And I, I could kind of go back home and uh, interact with, with, in a way, old friends, you know, because there wasn't any traveling. I couldn't visit family. I couldn't go anywhere. So I just sat down and thought, well, I'll just start another one. And uh, I wrote, then I wrote this new one, Shifty's Boys. The idea going in was that I would just use the same characters. And I really loved Shifty. She's a, an older lady, extremely tough, you know, carries a little pistol in her in her house dress uh, pocket with the, the sights filed down so it won't snag. Um, yeah. She's got these, you know, sort of wild sons. And um, I, I knew I wanted to sort of write about her. I really fell in love with her uh, as a character. And so that's, that was like, the, you're asking about the genesis of the series, the book. It's all tied yeah. in together to me. And then now I've since you know, completed a third one. So there's at least a trilogy. Um, oh, wow. And they just go back to back. And I saw that you, uh, in in an interview for the last book, you were saying this was like some of the most fun you've had as a writer. What was it the being able to kind of go back to home in a way or what, what, what about this type of genre writing was it wasn't so appealing? The, it wasn't the genre that, that made it fun. It was, uh, it was a, a, a changing of my approach in how I decided to write. You know, I've written a lot of different things over the years. And uh, when I decided to write this, I thought, okay, you've got to have a lead character. That's Mick Harden. But really, my stance, my, my writing approach was that the protagonist of this book would be the landscape. That's a beautiful, beautiful landscape in the hills of Kentucky. And I know it extremely well. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the woods like Mick did. And the culture itself, the way people think, the way they talk, the way they interact. So once I did that, it also made that decision. I also decided to just open up my full sort of use of the language and write exactly the way I thought in order to get at this, try to depict a culture in a way that I, I don't think it has ever been adequately portrayed. And that just led to great fun, you know. Uh, I could do anything, say anything, write anything, and I loved all these characters. I just loved them. I still do. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Chris Offit, and his new book is Shifty's Boys that we're talking with him about today. The one part, it's a really fun novel. It's a great read, but the thing, it, there's a lot of action that, that the characters are constantly in in motion. Yeah. But when you talk about the kind of the environment part, is you know, like you said, Mick Harden has a has a you know deep appreciation of the woods and the natural environment. He'll be in some situation that's dangerous, and then there'll just be an aside where he's like, 
he sees a snake and then he thinks about that snake and what that snake's like and his experiences with that, you know, maybe his past experiences. Talk a little bit about that, you know, kind of putting that color into it and how you balance it out with the uh, moving the, the plot forward. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about it as a, as a balancing act. It's just that when, when any, any form of writing is a, a, a case of handling time and um, time in the novel and time for the characters. And there are moments where in any narrative where, you, you know, you can't jump to the good parts, so to speak. There's a sort of a, a transition period um, for, uh, in the narrative. And I realized that these were good points for me to have these sort of memories and also quick descriptions of, of nature and then mix response to those, those, uh, those quick descriptions um, rather than, oh, I don't know, big, long, prolonged flashbacks or deep memories. Yeah. Um, so it was really just a, a, a technique I developed in order to move from one one transition to another. I think the one with the snake if, that you're referring to, like he's just lying in the woods wait. He's waiting. He There's nothing to do, and I can't move that faster. I can't make time go faster. You can't say, well, you know, an hour later, uh, this yeah. happened. So I needed to give it a, a sense of real-time passage. And, you know, there's not much left if you're just lying down in the woods. <laughs> ask, yeah, yeah, ask, yeah. ask any hunter, you know. <laughs> So Nick, the main character, you kind of talk about how he learned, you know, the woods from his grandfather and right. who was noted, a noted woodsman. How did you learn about it? Was it something kind of self-taught or how did you, you know, build your aptitude for um, flora and fauna? I think it was a, a combination of a few things. First of all, I, I, when I say I grew up in the woods, it was literal. The Daniel Boone National Forest was the last national forest designated in the country and people were already living there and my my uh where i grew up had been a a big a big town in the 20s and now is down to 200 people on dirt roads literally surrounded by the national forest so i walked to school i walked a path through the woods to get to school but, uh which is kind of a shortcut and then as i got older uh you know being in the house became less attractive to me for a number of reasons. So I started just spending most of my time outside and uh, in the woods. Probably half of it was alone and some with my brother and some with a couple of neighbors. But it was the woods became a form of solace to me and a place to turn to uh, that was safe. You know, I know it sounds funny because probably thousands or tens of thousands of people are get, get scared of the woods. But for me, it right. was the one place I felt the safest. And so, yeah, it was kind of self-taught. Uh, and I've always had a, you know, I've always loved to observe and I have a strong visual memory. It just later I started getting hold of, you know, these nature guides and it's like, oh, I know what that is and here's a name for it and that kind of thing. So, yeah, self-taught. I wanted to be a park yeah. ranger at one point, but you, you have to have a degree in being a park ranger before they'll even <laughs> consider you. <laughs> right, right. So in terms of like bringing that detail up, is that something in terms of just do you have like an instant recall for this type of – do you have to kind of use something to kind of get you back into those woods or can you just kind of instant recall to kind of bring that detail out in your writing? 
I think that over the years I've developed this, this uh, a way of of writing where uh, I mean when I first started it was hard to get into the imaginary world, and then I would enter it and then I would be afraid to leave it because I th- I would think oh I, I'll never be able to find it again and I, I don't have that anymore I've I've realized I can just step into the it's essentially my own imagination easily and when I do with this world it's much more real than imaginary like I know all the scents I know all the smells I know all all the birds and the trees and the wildflowers and the flowers and the creeks and how the sounds are and the way the light is and where the shadows fall and I know how all these people think and talk because I lived there for the first 20 years of my life. So yeah, it's simple for me. It's also in a way I don't it takes a little pressure off the narrative because I don't have to invent as I go. Like all I got to do is imagine my way into the world by seeing it and then put these people in there in my imagination and essentially see what they say and do. <laughs> That's my writing style. Uh, is yeah. Throw 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 trouble at them and see how they respond. So you don't maybe you don't have like the uh, like your plot all mapped out and this is where they're gonna this is where they're trying to get to and this is you know this point and that point before you start the actual writing. No, not in the least. I tried that uh, in the past and. I realized that the most fun and uh, part of it was developing the idea and then a synopsis and then sort of uh, making it a little bit bigger. But when I sat down to try to write, I was bored out of my mind. It was like filling in the the shapes in a coloring book. You know, the fun part yeah. had already been done. So I, I didn't have any idea. And with Shifty's Boys, all I knew was I I wanted Shifty to be a significant character. I figured the way to do this is just to I would open with a, a you know, the, the victim of homicide, very conventional approach. Here's a body, somebody finds it. I had no idea who it was or why that person had been murdered, but I wrote it. And then I thought, okay, I'll just write a few more chapters about Mick and his sister and, and Johnny Boy, the deputy, and then uh, hope that you know, more information will emerge in my imagination as I write, which is what happened. So... That's how I work. It gets it. it uh, at times in revision, it can get a little complicated because things don't always hang together. Uh, so I have right. to really carefully go back and get rid of stuff and move stuff in and move it around and add more information to set up what I seem to have written. So with no plan, that's more necessary. At the same time, I believe in this approach because. Every day when I write, and I did it this morning when I was working on another, uh, another book, I surprise myself on the page, and I'm trying to entertain myself. Like, that's the only reason I want to write is to make time pass fast, entertain myself, and enjoy it and have surprises. So I figure if I don't plan anything out too far ahead, that same experience could be translated through the language and the narrative to any eventual reader. And the surprise keeps you going back every day, so it it allows that that I guess that's kind of the impetus to get you sitting down in front of the computer or wherever. I'm not really sure what keeps me going back every day. Actually, I've thought a lot about that. Uh, it makes time go by fast, and without writing, when I write, I feel better about myself as a as a person, as a a father, a citizen, a neighbor, a human, a brother, a son. You know, in general, it's it's a 
it gives me a sense of uh, purpose. Uh, so that's part of it. But also, uh, yeah, I like it. You know, I, I really like it. And my my goal is like a page a day. Mm-hmm. You know, if I write a page a day, there's 365 days in a year. Well, I'll finish the book before the year's up and have plenty of time to revise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Build that wall every year. Yeah. yeah. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. chalkboard chat it's an mpb education podcast it's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers students parents guardians and everyday people on various topics it's learning something new with every publication chalkboard chat find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Chris Offit. He's a writer, lives in Oxford, and he's got a new book out called Shifty's Boys. It's the second in a series uh, following the uh, character Mick Harden from Eastern Kentucky. You were talking about, you know, kind of your love of the, the, the characters in the book. I, I'm curious to hear you talk about, you know, kind of like the... Um, the characters are because of the smallness of their community. They're so interconnected, and part of the fun, one of the fun things in the book, is seeing how they, you know, they all seem to be interrelated in different ways. So when the characters kind of bounce off of each other, then you learn their their connections at that point. Is is there a particular challenge in having that deep interconnectivity in 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 this type of book, or is it is it mostly a a benefit for you? I mean. For me, it's not a challenge at all because it was literally the situation, uh, you know, where I grew up. Like, we all knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody. They, we all knew the family history of everybody. We knew uh, grandparents and grandchildren. It was a small community, uh, and there was town nearby, and that was, there was 5,000 people in town. And, you know, that was, for me when I was a kid, that was Paris. You know, that was like the big city. Uh, and there was an old saying, like, you can, a man can cough in town and, you know, uh, it'll beat you back to the porch, which meant that everybody talked. You know, there weren't, there weren't uh, cell phones, of course, or the Internet, so people just had verbal communication and observation. And this is an extremely isolated community, one of the most isolated in the USA. And even within it, because of this terrain, the families are sort of isolated from each other. But there hasn't been a lot of, uh, you know, it's not a place where people move to for jobs because there aren't any jobs. Um, and that just creates these relationships among families and relationships among people and also deep relationships with the land that I've never seen anywhere else. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at parts of the Delta or remind me uh, in, in some ways, of the hills, a little flatter, of course, but um, right. these uh, small, isolated uh, places, and then you go to town, and town is, you know, on the decline. 
in the in the book there there talks about you know kind of that that divide between the the town people and the country people yeah is that i mean you know looking from the outside you say well they're all part of this you know small community but there seems to be internally a big big divide talk about that in terms of what you experienced and they kind of almost see each other in some ways as sep- you know very they see themselves very differently from each other yeah i mean it, I, there there's a I'm not a sociologist, you know, or a historian or a documentarian, but I did r- recognize this when I was a child. Is there were, uh, we were from, you know, ten miles out in the county, and w- when we went to town, somehow people knew it, and so the town people considered themselves, you know, they weren't country people. They lived in this town of five thousand, and then there was a sort of a social status, if you will the closer you live to town so, or, or what road. Like there is the, the road to town, we call it the main road. So if you lived on the main road, you were a little higher up the social ladder than people who lived off the main road on a dirt road up a holler. Now, in the, another strange way, people who lived in the hollers, which is like, uh, on a flatland following a creek, they were <laughs> regarded as being you know higher up the social ladder than the people like me who grew up up a hill and out a ridge. So I, I think, if anything, there's some, there's some uh, human impulse to separate oneself or one's group uh, and in regards to other people. The thing with Eastern Kentucky is we were all pretty much looked alike, had the same religions, and uh, nobody had much money. So there wasn't anything else to... Uh, you know, to kind of ascribe good or bad qualities to accept the proximity to town. <laughs> yeah. And where yeah. I grew up was not only the furthest, but it had the bootlegger. So it was even even p- more poorly regarded by people as, and, you know, there was a little bit more violence, I suppose, and drag races and all that. But uh, uh, so there was truth to that, but it was simply because the bootlegger was there. Shifty, the 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 matriarch of this of this tough family, and who's the the book's named after. She, you know, Mick talks about her being. I think she's one that she kind of cuts. She cuts to the chase. There's not a lot of extra talk with her and her family. And right. you know, you think about the kind of the southern stereotype of the loquacious southerner, and and these characters are the the exact opposite. And so, talk about your experience with that in terms of like. That kind of nonverbalness, or, or or kind of not wanting to kind of waste words, or, or that in in a, in a in a in that type of person. I just think there's a bluntness and directness to uh, to life in the hills because it's uh, and it's influenced by the land itself. You can climb these hills and get to the top and bottom in in a day, uh, rather than, and you can be by yourself and you can see all manner of, uh, of, uh, of animal and bird. And there's no jobs. And I think it just results in, um, and it's been isolated for a long time. There's just a direct form of communication, very blunt. Um, it's not like uh, the deeper south, like you were saying, the, the, the cliche of the loquacious southerner, nothing like that at all. In fact, the, the Kentucky Hill dialect is a little faster than you'd think. People talk a little faster, and of course, some people talk a lot, some people don't. But 
I think that I wanted to have, and I love to talk, so, you know, I'm no, it's not a reflection of me, but I thought my characters uh-huh. uh, would be, uh, it would better reflect the the Hill culture if they were just as blunt and direct as I can be. It's been a problem for me socially, actually, like being that way. There's no interpretation. People do not, in the Hills, do not rely on social cues or interpretation. There's no implication of what of, of what they're trying to say or anything like that. Or there, There's no talking around a subject. Uh, it just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. And when I left, uh, you know, I, I had to sort of learn a different way of being, and I didn't always do it very well. And when I write these books, it's more like, well, this is my native language. This is my what native way of thinking. So that's part of the reason I love it uh, to do it. Kind of get back into your native, just how you spoke growing up, and it how I spoke, very, how I feels thought. Very commercial. Yeah, and then yeah. with I try with the books is to imply the dialect through through a syntax uh, within a sentence, rather than oh, you know, funky spellings to indicate. Uh, like going, G-O-I-N with an apostrophe instead of going or gonna or any of that stuff. I just think that, that I, I've read books like that. I understand what the writers are doing, but I found it hard to, to follow. I'd rather just sink into it. So for me, the syntax can, can apply it. And there is a beautiful, beautiful way of talking in the hills. And part of it is there's, there's music. There's a tradition of music in eastern Kentucky, as everybody knows, but that's pretty much the primary uh, sort of uh, form of expression. Uh, <clears throat> and th- uh, there's more maybe for women. I think there's a lot of quilters, for example. And men can do whittle things and gugas, but the verbal way of, of uh, the verbal expression is, I think, increases because it's a primary way of, uh, of expressing oneself. And it can be visual and beautiful and very funny, um, and and equally direct. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and today we're talking about we're talking with Chris Offutt about his new book, Shifty's Boys. You mentioned we've we've hit a, a couple of the you know some of the sci, some of the supporting characters that mm. are kind of working with Nick are are, are are a lot of fun, and they and I like that in the in some of them in the community they're kind of looked down on but i think mick kind of sees through in some ways and says this person has value and mm. and can and recognize that and i was maybe we could just talk real quick about like you mentioned johnny boy but he mm. is kind of a um he's the deputy but he's also kind of like the community historian i guess yeah i really love johnny boy i mean i know i keep saying that about all of them here's the thing man when i was 18 i dropped out of high school to join the army with the goal of being uh, paratrooper, because really what I thought was cool then was to jump out of an airplane with a machine gun. All right. Naive, dumb. Uh, but that was what I wanted to do. I wanted away from the hills. I wanted away from my dad. And I wanted adventure. Well, I failed a physical. No choice but to attend a local little college. So in a way, Mick is a version of what I could have imagined myself to be if I had not mm. failed the physical. And if I were big, strong, brave, and tough, right? That's, that's Mick. But in reality, I'm a lot closer to Johnny Boy, you know? Uh, hmm, maybe UFOs are real. Hmm, I'm a little bit afraid of ghosts, and I'm very organized, and I love history, and I'm going to keep 
just gather all this information. And I think if I were a deputy like him, I would be as reluctant a law enforcement official as he is. So, like, Johnny Boy's not going anywhere. Um, there's, a, there's an undertaker who's in there throughout named Marquis Sledge. And I got that name from uh, novels by Ace Atkins, who has an undertaker oh, right. named Marquis yeah. Sledge. And there is, in fact, Ace got it from a guy here in town who I think is a banker named Marquis Sledge. It's just sort of a inside, super inside uh, reference. It's also a great name, right? It's yeah, just a yeah. fantastic name. Uh, bears no, no bear, uh, has no bearing on or resemblance even to the, the genuine marquee, the original marquee of, uh, of Oxford. Um, what, what was the question about other characters? Well, the, well, maybe the other character I was thinking of was, is it Jackie, the, uh, the kind of the, oh, the homegrown yeah. inventor guy? Yeah, I love Jackie. Uh, you know, he's really smart. The thing is, uh, people in the hills can be super smart, super resourceful, but just not as well educated as elsewhere. And uh, outsiders uh, will often interpret that as meaning they're dumb. Uh, but, but it's just a case of access to information. And for me, Jackie represents that. This is a really smart guy who lives with his folks, uh, did not go to college, and has an inventive mind and invents things. He wants to be an inventor. And some of the things that he invents seem like they would have a practical purpose, and some they're just sort of fun things that he thinks might have. I mean, he's working on like an anti—I think it's uh, an anti—I can't remember what he's working on now. He has ideas for a, an invisibility cloak, but he's also yeah. con- he's the kind of guy who can fix anything. And I've known people like that. They can fix anything mechanical, and if they need a special tool, well, they'll realize, oh, I need the special tool. They'll spend three days making that tool, use it for 30 minutes, and keep, keep going. I, I grew up with a guy, so Jackie is, is that. I grew up with a guy who gave me a, uh, he gave me um, a, a medallion, sort of a necklace kind of thing. It was, uh, I think it was brass or uh, alloy metal. And he had, it was, he had molded it after, uh, from an arrowhead that he had found. And he gave, he made four of me, gave one to me and one to his three brothers, which meant a lot to me that he thought of me that way. And I, I was, it was really cool. And I asked him about it. And then he said, well, he explained to me what he had done was he, he had uh, made a wax mold uh, of the original arrowhead and then uh, took that and encased it uh, and then used the mold and filled it full of uh, molten, whatever this metal was that he had cobbled together. And then uh, uh, the wax melted and, and he, he had this, he had this, uh, you know, medallion to give me. And I listened and listened and slowly re- uh, realized that he had discovered on his own what is considered the lost wax technique for a sculpture that's been around for thousands of years. Uh, mm. You know, back to the, that's the, the Greeks and the Romans and all that. So yeah. uh, that just floored me. I, didn't, I never had the heart to tell him, like, oh, man, Randy, this has been around for a long time. Like, um, but that, what, that way of thinking, that way of practical application of obser- observable uh, phenomena and then coming up with a solution to it led to Jackie, Jackie Turner. 
Yeah, it's so great that he has that creative mind, but then in which people kind of disregard, like you said, but he also just has this, he, he really does have like practical like skill that, 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 yeah. that helps Mick out a lot too, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if, in the Hills, everyone has, to, people develop pragmatic and practical skills just out of necessity. Every, every, I think every single person does because there's nobody else to do it if you can't or you can't figure it out or there's somebody in your family, you know, who can do this and you can do that. We just, I mean, I, I, uh, I think it's just the nature of that, that culture. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Arts Hour and today we're talking about we're talking with Chris Offutt about his new book Shifty's Boys. Now you mentioned earlier that you know, there's probably not been a book of this type set in in Eastern Kentucky. But were there other types of books in this kind of broader genre that were kind of regional or had some kind of strong local tie, cultural ties that you that were an influence to you in in getting started? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm a big reader. I read three books a week, and when I was younger, I read a lot more than that. Uh, so I've I've read widely in every every field and extensively, and uh, I really like this uh, the nature of crime fiction. The thing about crime fiction is, it's you're essentially making a deal, so to speak, with the reader. Here's a here's a crime at the beginning, and at the end, that crime will be resolved, one way or another. That's the kind of deal, and you just go with a character who resolves it whether it's good or bad or however it is. And that gives this great opportunity for anything to happen with other people and then and social commentary. And I really think that the crime novel is filling this role of a, social, uh, of a novel of social commentary that has fallen out of favor since probably uh, you know, after the 50s or 60s. It used to be its own kind of uh, literary genre of the social novel. And now yeah. crime novels do it. You asked about the influences. I mean, there's a guy named um, uh, James Lee Burke. He's from Louisiana and has been living in Montana for a long time. And uh, I th- his works are primarily set in in Louisiana, and I think they're fantastic. He's a great writer. Nobody writes about weather better than he does. And I like just how he gets at the local culture there. Walter Mosley is another one, although mo- most of Mosley's work is set in California and L.A. and historical, but... He's still writing about a community and a culture that is not part of the mainstream in the same way that Burke does, the same way that I do. So, I mean, I could probably, if I sat and put my thinking hat on, I could come up with a bunch more, but those are the ones that come to mind first. Before I we get away, I wanted, I wanted to I talk with you earlier. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I went to look at your website, 
and you know just kind of review and see your your you know your kind of author or your personal website you had the stuff about your you know books and that and yeah. but also had a section about photography which i wasn't aware of at all and it sounds like it's something that you've just kind of started sharing with people and so t tell me about kind of the origins of that of, of yourself as a photographer because it sounds like you've been doing it a while uh golly if, what i'm going to say is going to sound utterly contradictory to everything we've just talked about when i was in uh, in my 20s uh about 22 i think uh i saw photography for the first time like uh, in galleries and I, I thought, wow, this is great. I love art, but I'm a lousy painter, and I don't think I want to take the time necessary to develop the skill to be a better painter. But with photography, it's there's this technical thing. The imagery is already in the world. All I have to do is look at it and find a composition through the viewfinder. But I'd never done anything like this. I didn't never owned a camera. So I bought the cheapest camera on the market and then uh, got the guys at the shop to show me how to work it and spent an entire winter at the library reading every single book on photography. Got a job in an overnight photo place, which allowed me uh, an incredible discount on film and processing, which was expensive. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a car or no phone. Uh, I just rode my bicycle around and took pictures pretty obsessively, you know, uh, sometimes three rolls a day, at least one roll a day of 36 because it was cheaper in the long run to do 36 processing, blah, blah, blah. Saved yeah. them all, and I did that until I was about 30. And once I lost that job, I moved. And when I lost the job at the Photoshop, I couldn't afford it anymore. I also thought, well, to be a photographer, I'm going to – I tried wedding photography. I was – as an assistant, I was like, this is awful. I'm just carrying around spare cameras and equipment in case something goes wrong, because there's no do-overs, enormous pressure. I worked as a yeah. family photographer for a while for a company in uh, New England, and I helped a guy do school photography. And these things were just sort of lining up the people and snapping a picture in, in a, a, like an assembly line. And I didn't yeah. care for it. So I, I, I thought I'll just t try to stick to this sort of, I don't know what you call it, gallery photography or art photography. But I ran out of money, and ultimately, a typewriter, a used typewriter, was cheaper than <laughs> a used yeah. camera. And at, when I was thirty, I was just like, uh, I decided to go back to school, and I could have gone to art school or school for creative writing, and I picked creative writing. And over time, then I had kids, and then I couldn't. I just took pictures of them with cheaper cameras. So I really started writing because I couldn't afford photography, though I loved it, and that's what I wanted to do and be. Lo and behold, you know, uh, maybe 30 years goes by, digital photography gets invented, and it's a lot cheaper, you know? You just take the picture, plug it into your computer, look at it. So I started doing that, I returned to that, while writing all the time, of course. Anyhow, within the lockdown, again, I thought this is a good time for me to look through these pictures, and I had over 10,000 negatives from the 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow. wow, what do I do with these? Well, you can send them off and get them converted into something, but it costs an arm and a leg. So I actually just bought a, oh, I don't even know what it's called, a slide converter. Uh, uh, no, a, a negative converter that would put it onto the computer and did it. It's slow and painstaking. You can only do a few at a time. 
but I had plenty right. of time on my hands. <laughs> and remarkably, most of the f- actual photographs I took back then are gone or they had deteriorated because of uh, you know cheap ink and bad storage. But these negatives I had stored in archival sleeves, even then I had this idea that it would be important. And then from there, I thought, what do I do with these? What do I do with all these c- pictures on my computer? Well, somebody told me about Instagram. <laughs> and, and I started an Instagram account. I, I put a picture up almost every day from, this, from all this. So long story, but in my own little way, I would rather be, so to speak, a photographer than a writer. Although, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm probably conceivably better at writing than I am at photography. But, I, yeah, I really, really, truly love photography. And Mississippi is just beautiful and has a lot of really great light. Well, well, tell me about, I was looking at your Instagram <laughs> account. Maybe you have more than one, but so early on, it looked like you did a lot of street photography, you know, when you were talking about in your 20s and that. But this is more exterior kind of peopleless landscape or design. What what inspires you when you go out or what are you looking to take pictures of these days? You know, my approach is similar to what we talked about with writing. I, I just go out. I just go out to see what's there. And I usually try to pick a day when it's really nice light, you know, I, I rather than an overcast day. And then so the light's always hitting one direction. You know, it's either coming from the east or coming from the west. I, devo- I try to avoid the overhead because it doesn't look that good on film. So right. I figure out where the light is. And just go towards it, make sure I'm can driving slowly or walking to see what the light's hitting. Then after that, I look for color, because I love the color, uh, a rich color. And then if I find a, a color that I think is really appealing, I also look for line and shape. And then it becomes a case of trying to, if I, I, I get attracted to color, line, and shape, then I have to walk around on the on the ground uh, after I park my truck and get out and take some pictures, a few pictures, or figure out what's the best, where's the best uh, perspe- uh, point of view for me to stand. Like, do I squat? Do I stand up in the back of the truck? Do I move to the left? Do I right? Do I back forward or go forward? Really trying to just compose a picture inside the viewfinder. I don't know if a lot of photographers do that now. I learned it as a young fellow because it was so expensive to do like there were just and I had no idea how to crop and and enhance color and I really had no desire to to learn that then I mean dark rooms are you know they're dark and they're filled with poison so (laughs) (laughs) it didn't interest me so that's really like that's the approach and I that's that's just what I do uh I have a pretty good 35 millimeter uh camera not the top of the line but some of these cell phones are just fantastic with their their abilities if uh with the the quality that of picture they get and some of those on that Instagram page i mean there's one that's up there a fairly recently one it's just it's just an entrance to where my sister lives and it's a house with a fence and i drove by it every day and and then i thought this might make a cool picture so i just rolled stopped in the middle of the road rolled the window down put my hand out the window holding a cell phone and took a few, hoping that I got the right angle, and then just drove on to my yeah. sister's. And lo and behold, one came out. 
I mean, it's kind of like writing, you know, like I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll, I'll just go out there and interact with the world and see what I get. Whereas with writing, it's essentially staying indoors, interacting with my own imagination. And I find that photography and writing are, are nice antidotes to each other. You know, one is very internal yeah. and, and, and stationary. Like you just write and get tense, sit alone in a room and get tense, and then go out in the <laughs> world and look at what's there. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, let's uh, just remind everybody, your new book is Shifty's Boys, out in all the better bookstores. Uh, please go check it out. And thanks again. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.